Do you recognize the, uh, the thing on the screen up there? That's actually called a, a Newton's Cradle. Maybe your science teacher had one in school. I didn't know it was a Newton's Cradle until I looked one up to, to put a picture of it on the screen. But it's what it is. It's, it's a model that demonstrates Newton's first law of motion, which says, more or less, Things don't change unless something else makes them change. In the physical world, in the world of physics, an object that's at rest is going to remain at rest until something else compels it to move. And then on the other end, it's also true that once something is moving, in a given direction, it's going to keep going in the direction it's going unless something else compels it to change, to stop, to turn. It's the way God, and it works like that always, right? It always, if you drop this steel sphere over here, this one is always going to take off when they hit, right? Every single time. It's the way God designed our physical world to work, it's very ordered. But it's not just like that with ob physical objects. We are like this in our behavior. We will keep doing the things we have always done, the way and the ways that we've always done them, unless something compels us to change our behavior. Now in the, in the Bible, in the scriptures, God has given us a lot of behavioral directions. There's a lot of things in here. God tells us, don't do these bad things. Do these good things. But we are not um, born headed straight down the line of God's behavioral commands. That's Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. We're off. We have to be compelled to change. What is it that compels change in a Christian? Because you know, fortunately for us, Praise God in heaven for us. God has made a way for people like us who can't stay on that straight and narrow, who don't always do the good things and avoid the bad things. God has made a way for us to be rescued by God, to be saved by God, to be redeemed by God, which is what we need. Hypothetically speaking, if someone could always do the good and never do the bad, God would look at us at the end of our life and say, you are justified. I count you as righteous based on your behavior, but that's not us. That ship sailed a long time ago, but God made a way for us to be rescued in spite of our behavior, right? It's the gospel. What happened when Jesus went to the cross is the only human being, the son of God, Jesus Christ, who did follow the straight and narrow. He never failed to do something he should have done. He never did something he shouldn't have done, yet he was punished as if he had done every sin you or I ever sinned. 
And God dumped out all of the punishment we deserve for our sins onto him and then said, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Praise God that that is true. But if this is true, We maintain, Paul said in Romans 3.28. This is Christianity 101. This is bedrock belief of Christianity. We maintain that a man, every person who is justified, declared righteous, declared okay, good enough by God. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Which means regardless of how good you do at doing the good things God wants you to do and avoiding the bad things God doesn't want you to do, you can be justified, declared by God to be okay, good, not guilty. If that is true, and Paul maintains that it is, then why should you and I change our behavior to match what God wants? What compels me to be different. I'll tell you, historically, this is one of the things we've gotten very, very wrong in Christendom. Everything that calls itself Christianity over the last 2,000 years has struggled with this very question, and we have gotten it very, very wrong, very, very consistently. Because the idea goes something like this. If we teach just the gospel, if we tell people, you can be declared righteous by God, that's justified, regardless of your behavior. If we really tell people that, people are going to go nuts. People are just going to go bananas. They're going to say, well, I'm going to heaven anyway, so what do I care? Sweet, I've got like immunity in the high court of the universe. Nah, 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 you can't send me to hell. Right now I can do whatever I want. That's what Christendom has been scared will happen if we teach people the gospel. So we start adding things to it to try and compel behavior change. In different eras, in different places, in different traditions, we start doing things like this. Everyone will believe, everyone that calls himself a Christian will agree this much. We're saved by an act of God's grace comes to people who believe in what Jesus did at the cross. But then we'll start to say things like this. Because, man, if we just tell you all you have to do is believe, like you'll never come here again. Why would you come to church if you go to heaven without it? So we'll, we'll say things like this. These are all false. It's all grace based on what Jesus did. It's faith. But our church controls the valve of God's grace. If you want to get hit by that grace that flows from the cross, you've got to come here. This is where we turn the, the sprinkler on, so to speak. And our guy that stands at the front of our building is the one that can open the valve to God's grace. You've got to come here. You've got to do our things. And if you don't, you're probably still going to hell. And we have to do that because if we just tell people this, we'll never see them again. 
Or we say, yes, it's all grace, but here's a list of sins. At the very least, you have to avoid these, like the varsity sins, the big ones. Because if you commit these, God just won't help you. So at the very least, avoid these. That's false too. Now I'll pick on our side of the fence. Or we say stuff like this. If you had really believed the gospel, you would never sin these sorts of sins. If you had really believed, you wouldn't sin a sin like that. So we'll be watching. And if you get stuck sinning a kind of sin that's on our list, we'll just tell you, you never really believed. Because if you believed, you wouldn't do that. And that always turns into me buying the lie that it's really my behavior that tells me whether or not I'm going to heaven. Paul taught us this. We maintain bedrock theology. People are justified by faith alone, apart from, regardless of, the do's and the don'ts that God still cares about in this book. Which brings us back to the very first question I asked. What, then what compels the change that God wants us, wants to see in our life? If we remove the threat of eternal condemnation or a few centuries in purgatory or something, if we remove that stuff, why would I change? If you're a Christian, you want to know what God wants from you? Like behaviorally, do you want to know what God wants from you if you're a Christian? And do you want to know why you should want that? Paul's going to tell us today in one verse. We're starting a new section of the book of Romans. Paul's going to get very practical. Paul, in the next two and a half chapters in the book of Romans, Paul's going to give us lots of behavioral commands. Do this stuff. Be kind. Love others. Use your talents and gifts to serve other people. He's going to give us a lot of negative commands. Avoid sexual immorality. Avoid drunkenness. Avoid all the fighting you used to fight. Avoid returning evil for evil. But all that really is just hashing out what he tells us today. He's going to tell us the whole of Christian life application in one verse today. That's why it's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Romans 12, 1. It's all we're going to study today. It reads this way. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. We're going to go through this slowly, a little bit at a time, obviously, because we're only doing one verse. And we're going to start with the very first word. Paul says, therefore, therefore, just the way that word works in any piece of writing, in any conversation, therefore always works like this. Based on what I've been telling you, Here's what I now want to tell you that depends on what I already told you. That's therefore. This is a word that looks backwards. 
And it looks backward at everything Paul has said in this book. We've already read three very important therefores in the book of Romans. Every time Paul gets to a new section, there's a therefore. Based on what I told you in the previous section, here's what I want to tell you now. So very quickly, here's everything we've studied in the book of Romans so far. The body of the book of Romans. Paul spent 17 verses introducing the book. And then the first section of the book of Romans, Romans 1.18 through 3.20, I call the bad news. The bad news is this. God requires righteousness and you ain't it. Right? There's no one righteous, not even one. We all fall short of the glory of God. We're all without excuse. We've made the exchange. I don't, I don't spend my life after what God wants. I just spend my life chasing after what I want. That's all there. God is going to be right and just when he judges every person whom he will judge. And then at the end of that section, the last verse of that section, Paul says, Therefore, here's my conclusion from that. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The only thing that the do's and the don'ts really do for us before we come to know Christ is show us that we need a Savior. The law is the makeup mirror that shows us how terrible our sin actually is. From that point, Paul moves into the second section, which is the good news. Romans 3.21 through the end of chapter 4, where Paul lays out the gospel. That Jesus was punished for our unrighteousness, and we get his righteousness placed on our account if we believe in him. And at the end of that section, it's the verse right after this that actually concludes this section and introduces this section. Paul says, therefore, based on the gospel... Since we've been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have believed, you already have shalom, peace, wholeness with the God who will judge you one day. You have nothing to fear from that judgment. Because through the gospel, you have peace with God. From that point, Romans 5 through 8 is all about the hope we have because that's true. I don't have to be scared that God is going to send me to hell when I die. Why? Because I've been justified through faith in Christ. And the therefore in that section is Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And from that point, Romans 9 through 11 is what we've been studying over the last couple of months. Where Paul's been teaching us that God is faithful to keep all of his promises. He uses Israel as the test case. If God is keeping the promises he made to Israel, we can depend he is keeping all of the promises he made to us. And here's our therefore that starts the next section. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Last thing that this therefore points back to. Here's where we ended last week. He ends chapter 11 this way. Paul gets through everything he's talked about in Romans 1 through 11. And he sort of loses his mind because he's climbed up to this peak. And he looks out over these plans that God has made. And he bursts into this 
song, this poem about the depths and the riches of the knowledge, the wisdom of God, how much smarter God is. How could you even think of this stuff? For from God and through God and to God are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's everything that's come before. That's Romans 1 through 11. Based on all of that, Paul's going to tell us how our lives should be different. We begin. Paul says, therefore, I exhort you. Everything we read now for the next two and a half chapters, but certainly today, is an exhortation from Paul. Do you know what an exhortation is? What To exhort someone. This is just Paul saying, I urge you really strongly to do what I'm going to tell you to do. This is an exhortation. And that's important because it doesn't happen automatically. I wish it were true that if you really believe, you wouldn't sin anymore or you wouldn't sin like sins like that anymore if you really believed. Wow, do I wish that were true. The only problem with that idea is reality and my own sinful heart. So Paul is going to be exhorting us to give our lives to God. So now we've made it through three words. We better keep going. Therefore, I exhort you. Next, Paul's going to tell us who he's talking to for sure. And it's important that we know. Therefore, I exhort you, based on everything I've said through chapters 1 through 11, I challenge you. Who? Brothers or brethren. He doesn't mean that in a gender-specific way, like it's only for the boys. That's why the... Uh, the translation I have on the screen in your bulletin says brothers and sisters. That's fine. That word's not in the Greek, but who are the brothers and sisters that come to God by the mercies of God? In one word, who is that? It's Christians. What Paul is about to say from this point on through the rest of the book is for Christians only. Here's why that's important. It's for people who have approached God through the mercies he has offered through Christ alone, through faith. Here's why that's important. If God hasn't done Romans 1 through 8 especially, but if God hasn't done Romans 1 through 11 for you, it's going to do you no good to try to do 12 through 15 for him. Paul's going to be giving us lots of behavioral commands, but these are only for people who are already brothers and sisters of the king, co-heirs with Christ, justified completely at peace with God. The behavioral commands we're going to get to don't get anyone peace with God. They're only for people who already have peace with God. Here's why that's important. The result, if we try to do Romans 12 through 15 before we do Romans 1 through 11, it becomes Legalism, which is this false idea that I can be more in God's eyes through how well I do the good things and avoid the bad things. Legalism says, do all this stuff and you will live. The gospel says, believe in Jesus and he'll give you life. 
But the gospel doesn't stop there. The gospel doesn't stop there. Now we're finally ready. So what must I do if I'm a Christian? Do you know there's really only one thing? There's only one thing God wants from you. God wants from me if you're already a Christian. And here it is. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, who come by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God. Paul's going to tell us a whole bunch of stuff in chapters 12 through 15 that that will look like if we're doing that, but that's the thing we are to do. Give our bodies to God as a sacrifice. Alive, holy, and pleasing to God. Let's go through that one word at a time. What we're supposed to do is present ourselves to God. That's an intentional word. What's, what's the difference between giving someone something and a presentation. Here's the difference. You can give someone something on a whim. You can give someone something like halfway by accident. You can be in the line at the grocery store and somebody's short on change and you can decide, oh, I'm going I'm to give them what they need to get their groceries. You didn't plan it. You just sort of, it just happened. It's a good thing. A presentation is different. Nobody accidentally does a presentation. Nobody does a presentation on a whim. It's intentional. It's planned. It's on purpose. So when Paul says, God wants you to present your life to God, he's necessarily saying you just can't float your way through life and think you're doing this. Because a presentation doesn't happen by accident. It's intentional. It's plain. Now, notice what Paul says we're supposed to present to God. He says, present your bodies to God. Now, that's interesting. Paul could have said, present your heart to God. Present your mind. God could have said, present your life to God, which is assumed, all those things, I think. But he doesn't. He says, present your body to God. Why would Paul say such a thing? Because what Christians do with their bodies matters to God. Christianity is not just some decision I made in my mind and my heart at camp years ago. It's not. Paul says, if you've accepted the mercy of God, he wants your body. He wants your whole life. And Paul calls that 
a sacrifice. Boy, I'll say, what's a sacrifice? In Paul's day, uh, in the ancient world, in the first century, there were lots of sacrifices. Some from Paul's background, others in the church had pagan backgrounds, but sacrifices were generally the same. You took something that was costly and you offered it to some sort of God. Well, Paul has definitely told us to give something costly. What will it cost you to live your life this way? Everything. This is going to God and saying, I want you to have me. All of me, my very body. It's costly. Paul tells us three things about this sacrifice of our bodies. Most of our translations call it a living sacrifice, which is fine. Just these three adverbs are, are, are equal uh, in the Greek, so I kind of like this translation that just says a sacri- the sacrifice we give to God of our bodies is supposed to be three things, alive, holy, and blameless. That our, body, that our body is to be a living sacrifice, a sacrifice that is alive, is Paul's way of saying this. Again, Christianity is not one decision I made years ago. It's what I do with my life while I'm alive every day. It's been said a lot about this verse. I couldn't even find the original author. Uh, it's been said a lot. The thing about living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar and trying to go back to uh, their old life. Ain't that the truth? This Christianity thing is about what we do with our lives. So when we present our bodies, it's every day of our life, every day, I am yours, take me, what do you want with this day? But, notice Paul says, as we present our bodies, we're supposed to be presenting something that is holy and pleasing. To God, you, me. If you know anything about the sacrifices from Paul's background, those were animal sacrifices offered at the tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem. What kind of animals? What did an animal have to be like before it could be sacrificed? It had to be without blemish. It had to be like perfect. You couldn't take blind, damaged, limping, diseased animals. You had to take something good and perfect. So, Paul just said, we're supposed to present a holy and pleasing me. Didn't Paul tell us that we're not that? Can this be true about you? Can you wake up in the morning and say, God, I'm holy and I'm pleasing to you? Can you say that? You know what the answer to that is? Remember, this is only for people who have been through Romans 1 through 11. You were made holy and pleasing to God. How? Because you were so good, you finally got self-disciplined enough that you stopped messing up and God accepted you? No. How were you made holy and pleasing to God? Because you what? You believed 
in Jesus Christ. You accepted the gospel and he justified you. He declared you to be holy and pleasing to him. But why? So that you could take your ticket to heaven and just sin and sin and sin and sin because you have immunity in the high court and nothing matters anymore. Is that why he made you holy and pleasing to him? Paul says, may it never be. You know why he made you that way? So that you could be a holy and pleasing sacrifice given back to him every day. That's what God wants. You want to know what God wants from you as a Christian? He wants you as a Christian. Your body, your life, every day. But why would I want to do that? Because, Pastor Matt, you've told me over and over and over again, I'm going to go to heaven based on faith alone, not based on how well I do on the do's and don'ts. So tell me, why should I want to give up my whole life and give it to God when I'm going to heaven anyway? You know why? Because, according to Paul, it's the only logical, reasonable decision you could possibly make, given what you know. It's only reasonable. It's what he says. This is so awesome. God, this life that you gave me, I want to give back to you. Why would I want to do that? Paul says, because it is your reasonable service. Now, there's some translation issues I want to walk through, because if you have your Bible open, yours might not say reasonable service. Yours might say spiritual here. And this word service it might say worship in your Bible. And I want to tell you that your Bible's fine. I just want to tell you why these get translated either way. We'll start with the easy one, the last one. Right now, are we in... So this gets translated either worship or service. Right now, are we in worship or are we in service? Yes. That's this word. It's a religious word. Paul's saying what you do with your life, that living sacrifice presented to God every day, that's your worship to God. That's your service to God. Same word. Doesn't matter. Okay. Next, this word right here that the New English translation on the screen translates reasonable uh, or logical. Your Bible might say uh, spiritual. This word can mean like inner. And if your translators translate it that way, they're trying to bring out that your, your real inner worship has to do with what you do with your body. Christianity's not just about what we think. That's important. Come back next week. But Christianity, what we do with our bodies is our worship to God. It's our spiritual worship works out through our bodies. That's completely true, 100% accurate. I just lean this direction. I think it misses Paul's point. Because this word right here, the Greek word right here, listen to it. This is not the way you do translation, by the way. But see if this word sounds like any English words you know of. That word is logicane. Logicane. What's that word sound like? 
Sounds like logic. It is the word in Greek, especially in the uh, philosophical systems of Paul's day. It's the word for logical, rational, reasonable. I think that's what Paul is saying. And here's why. Paul says, if you really believe you are the kind of person Romans 1, 2, and 3 said you were, which means not good, right? Not righteous, fall short. If you really believe that's true about yourself, yet you believe, next section of Romans, that God made this incredible plan. Who could think this up? That he could do what he promised, which is punish every sin and yet forgive you at the same time because he punished your sin on his son. And all you have to do is believe in him. And now you look to God like you lived his life instead of your life. Do you believe that? Yes. If you believe that, then we have this hope that there's now no condemnation left for me because it was all poured out on him. And my judgment before God is not going to be based on my behavior. It blows my mind. And then last, the last section, we can believe every promise. God's going to keep all these promises. And Paul loses his mind. He says, it's so great. Your plans, your smarts, your wisdom, they're so big. They're so deep. They're so rich. Ah, I just lose my mind. Therefore, the most reasonable, logical, rational thing I could do is decide who's better served to be in charge of my life? Me, the one who screwed my whole life up in Romans 1 through 3? Or God, who makes all things work together for good for those who love him and cling to him? Which one's smarter? When we get to the behavioral commands, they're not old-fashioned. They're not silly. They're not stupid. They're the most reasonable, rational thing you can do. Why? Because he said so. Because the best thing I can do is just hold on to him and say, I don't even get this, but if you say so, I'm going with you. And we can do this with every single temptation or sin. You can be like, God, here's this person. I really want to sleep with this person. We're not married. I can come up with some justifications why I don't think it's really that big of a deal. Well, in this case, in my case, it's really, you know, it's not that, it's not that big of a thing. But I open your word. And your designs for sexuality are incredibly narrow. Take my life. I know this will be better for me in the end because you can make everything work together for good. We say, God, um, man, like if I follow all your do's and don'ts, uh, it's going to hurt me financially. Because I got to be honest, God, like giving money to the church, giving money to charitable organizations, finding people in need and just giving them money, Seems like lighting money on fire to me, God. It really does. And if I'm honest on my taxes, and if I'm honest in my business dealings, if I take care of my employee, whatever it is, like, oh man, it's going to cost me a lot. I can't see, I can't fathom how this would be best for me, except you're God. We could do, do you see how we could do this? Like, name your sin. 
Mike, don't do it out loud. Like people, that'll be weird. But name your sin. We can do the same thing. And that's why Paul does challenge us elsewhere. To really challenge ourselves and ask ourselves, do we really believe what we say we believe? Because, you know, when I, when I get to one of those decisions, like, well, you know what? I know what God says here or here, but, you know, I don't think so. That's just not for me. Eh, I think I'm going to pass on that one. It's like, it's like, do you really believe that he's God? Like, do you really believe that he can make all things work together? Everything comes in this whole universe, comes from him, works through him, and we are returning to him, and we can read what he says he wants from us and go, nah, I'm good. That's when it becomes a struggle. Like, dude, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, Paul says. That's why. Because when I really do believe that I'm dealing with who I'm dealing with and, and I understand how he deals with this creation of his and how much smarter and richer and deeper and stronger and better he is to run my life than me. That's what compels change in the life of a believer. That's what compels change in the life of a believer. Not just the change other people can see, not just the changes that I can't you know, get away with. Otherwise, is believing I'm dealing with the one who loved me enough to die for me who can be smart enough and big enough and strong enough to think up all these plans where all this stuff can somehow work together for good when I love him. So let me ask you, do you believe you're a sinner in need of a savior? Some audience participation would be nice right now. Do you believe you're a sinner in need of a savior? Yes. I'm not above compelling behavioral uh, uh, acquiescence here. You believe you're a sinner, Nina said. Do you believe Jesus is that Savior that He died on the cross to save you from your sins? Do you believe that? Do you believe in the hope we have in Christ that because He made you righteous, that God thinks you are righteous and holy and pleasing? Do you believe that? That's the hard one. You believe that? Do you believe He'll keep all of His promises? Even when we can't figure out what he's possibly doing, but he is keeping his promises. Do you believe that? Then I, as your pastor, along with the Apostle Paul, I want to urge, I want to urge, I want to exhort, I want to challenge, I want to beg, I want to plead with you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a sacrifice. Alive, holy, and pleasing to God. Why? It's just your reasonable, logical worship service every single day to the God who really is God. Pray with me and we'll close. Father God, that is the most easy preaching, tough living passage um, 
It makes so much sense when we just read your word and think about who you are and who we are and what we ought to do. Like, that's it, God. You, I should give you my life because it's best for me to let you control my life. But somehow, between our logic when we're sitting in here and our logic out there in the real world, when the temptation comes and stuff gets painful and difficult, it's where we mess up. Thank you that how well we do this doesn't determine our eternity. Your son destroyed under the penalty our sins deserve. That's what guarantees our eternity. But compel our change. Exhort us through your Holy Spirit, Lord, to give our lives every day. A sacrifice. It's costly. We're going to have to make some changes. Things are going to have to be different. It might be embarrassing. It might hurt. But, but it's better. It's better. It's only reasonable to understand it. That if we let you run our life, our life ultimately will be better. And it will always have been worth it because you our God, we love you, Lord. We fail at this. Help us stumble forward, living sacrifices. In Jesus' name, amen.